Welcome to Renovate, the young adult ministry of Christ Chapel Bible Church in Fort Worth, Texas. We are for all young adults. Whether you're far from God or walking close to Him, we believe that our God fully knows us and fully loves us. So instead of leaving us as He finds us, He is constantly and graciously renovating our lives so we can look more like Him. Enjoy this week's message. I can't guarantee you a relationship, right? Like, I just can't. Like, and, and, and some of you guys feel that frustration because for a lot of you, like, like you've been doing things right for a long time, right? And, and, and maybe you have been in relationship series after relationship series, and you listen to podcasts, and you've read books, and there's a frustration in your heart of thinking, man, I, I've done everything right, but I still don't have the type of relationship that I, I long for. I don't have the, the person that I, that I hope would just kind of come along. Like, I, I don't have that, right? Like, that's a frustrating thing when we stand up here and we kind of portray that, man, if you do X, Y, and Z and you don't do these things and, you know, Prince Charming or Princess whoever, I don't know princesses, but they'll come along, right? And they'll just, like, be like this magical one that just shows up and completes you. Like, that's, that's just not how things work, right? Like, the reality is I cannot guarantee you a relationship. But here's what I can guarantee you. What I can guarantee is that you'll never have the types of relationships that you desire if you ignore certain things that we see in Scripture. You will never have the types of relationships that you desire, the types of healthy relationships that you desire if you ignore certain things in Scripture. So we're going to reverse engineer this thing, and this is going to be a series called How to Ruin a Perfectly Good Relationship. And then, so obviously, or at least hopefully, obviously, I'm not actually trying to teach you how to ruin relationships, the reality is that we're pretty good at ruining relationships on our own, right? The problem is that we don't always know what we do that ruins them, right? Our relationships tank, and we're just kind of like, I, I don't know what happened, right? Or we're aware that we don't have the, the types of health or the types of relationships that we want, and something's off, but we don't quite have the, the understanding to say, oh, oh, this is what's happening, Right? And so what we're going to do is we're just going to kind of walk systematically through how to ruin a relationship with the hopes that maybe some light bulbs go off of saying, oh, dang it, that's what I've been doing, right? And not in like a judgy, condescending way. Like we all need healthy relationships and we all do things. We all have blind spots that keep us from having the types of relationships that we desire. So that's really our goal. And so tonight I'm going to talk about the first step in ruining a perfectly good relationship. And let me just say from the get-go. This is like the foundational step, right? And this is going to sound weird and random because step one is be bad at friendships. Just be bad at friendships or just be bad at just basic human interaction, right? Um, and let me tell you why this is so important. Oftentimes, we believe that who we are as a friend has no bearing on who we're going to be as a spouse. And that's just false, Right? Oftentimes, we think that we can, we can function one way with our relationships and our friendships and then, all, then automatically just turn it on once we start dating some, some, somebody or marry someone and think, oh, I'm going to be this phenomenal spouse when I haven't really been that good of a friend, right? Because there's an absolute correlation. Who you are as a friend is, is going to shape who you will be as a spouse. If you are a, a, a controlling friend, you will be a controlling spouse, if you are a needy friend, you will be a needy spouse. But on the flip side, if you're a, a kind, generous, sacrificial friend, you'll probably be a kind, generous, sacrificial spouse. Right? So there's a direct correlation between who we are in our friendships and who we will be 
when we date or when we eventually marry somebody else. And so we're going to be talking about how on earth do we be bad at friendships. That's kind of where we're going. So there's so many things we could talk about. And honestly, it's been very hard to just narrow it down because I feel like we could talk about this for hours. Um, But I'm going to just lay before you three ways, three tips on how to be a horrible friend, which might look weird in your notes if you're looking back in a couple years. It's like, what on earth were they talking about? But um, here it is, all right? The step one. The first way to be a horrible friend, to be a bad friend, is to function as if people exist to serve you. To function as if people exist to serve you. Now, let's be honest about how we approach relationships. Um, We might not articulate it like this normally, But if we really think about how we approach other people, we kind of instinctually approach people through the lens of what can they offer me, right? What can they do for me, right? So so maybe, man, if if I uh, become this person's friend, they'll up my status. Maybe they'll get me ahead of my career. Maybe they'll make me feel more attractive. Maybe they'll make me feel more lonely. Maybe they'll just make me laugh a lot, right? Like we, we, we kind of instinctually look through the lens of, all right, like what, what are you going to do for me? How does this relationship benefit me? How does it serve my needs and my desires, right? And if you don't believe me, think about the last time that you walked into a party, right? My guess is that you did not walk into a party, scan the room and think, who in here is going to monopolize my time with the worst conversation imaginable, right? No, you might scan and think, that person's going to monopolize my time with the worst conversation imaginable. Let's scan over here, right? Like, because we know instinctually that that we are looking for people thinking, man, how can they serve my needs and serve my desires, even if it's just helping me stay in my comfort zone, right? We're, We're looking through the lens of what can people do for me, usually, right? And the reality is that's the complete opposite of how we've been taught in Scripture. Jesus actually leaves us a very different model of how we interact with relationships. Because sometimes we function as if people exist to serve our needs. And if we do that, I guarantee you will continue to tank relationships. right? But what we see from Jesus is something drastically different. In the book of John, uh, Jesus uh, sits down with his disciples for uh, the Passover meal, or what we oftentimes refer to this specific meal as the Last Supper. This is the last meal that Jesus shares with his boys. And so he sits down, and they begin to eat. And, and, And right in the middle of them beginning to eat, Jesus does something bizarre. He gets up from the meal, and he bends down, and he begins to wash the feet of his disciples, which... If you're unfamiliar with, with kind of what that means, that, that is a, a task that back in the day was the lowliest imaginable, most degrading, demeaning task. In fact, it was a task reserved for a non-Jewish house slave. So, so not even the Jewish house slaves could do it. It's so debased, so degrading that, that, no, like the non-Jewish house slaves, they can wash the feet of the visitors. Why that was so disgusting is because you're walking around on dirty, dusty streets in sandals. So by the time it gets dinner time, your feet are rank, right? I mean, let's just be real. And so what Jesus does is he gets up and he begins to bend down and wash the feet of his disciples. And the disciples are a little freaked out about it. They're like, whoa, 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 this kind of makes me feel weird, right? But, but, but look what Jesus says when he finishes in John 13, verses 12 through 15. He says this. He says, when he had washed their feet... And put on his outer garments and resumed his place. He said to them, do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. But if I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, 
you also should wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. So what Jesus is doing in this moment is he's allowing his followers to see, both his followers then and us as his followers now, to see this model that he has left for us. Because Jesus, the esteemed guest of honor, the rabbi, the teacher, the Lord, the master, he gets up and he says, hey, I want you to take note of what I've done, right? I'm the esteemed guest, yet I am modeling for you that I don't exist for you to serve me, but I'm setting the tone that we exist to serve each other. So if you follow me, you don't function as if you believe that everyone else around you exists to serve you. No, we look for opportunities to serve other people. That's the model that we have been given. But oftentimes, if we're honest, when it comes to the relationships around us, sometimes we function as if we believe that people exist to serve our every need. And if you've been on the receiving end of one of those relationships, you know how exhausting and draining that can be. Right? If you have a friend that functions as if everyone around them ex- like, is alive to serve their every need, you know that those conversations eventually just become draining because they're never satisfied. You're always doing something wrong. You're always doing something to make them feel unloved because their expectations are so high, so unrealistic. And the reality is you, you can't serve them the way that they desire to, to be served. But if you've been on the receiving end of a, of a different kind of relationship, where you've been friends with somebody who, who doesn't look at you and think you exist to serve me, but rather looks for opportunities to serve you or to serve the people around you, you know what a life-giving, refreshing relationship that is. Right? Because they're constantly looking for ways just to, to serve and just to love and to make sure that you feel loved. Like that, that's a different type of relationship. So the reality is that I mean, we can continue to tank relationships by functioning as if everyone exists to serve us, or we can look to Jesus and say, hey, the model that Jesus has left for me is that my posture towards relationships of any kind is to look, how can I serve? How can I serve others? How can I love? How can I step in and be a blessing to those around me? Now, let me clarify what, what might be a fear. You might hear that, and, and the fear might be, all right, well, if I function in every relationship from the posture of I'm just wanting to serve and pour out and love, then don't I open myself up to the risk of being taken advantage of? That's a fair question, right? Like, might not there be a time when, when someone takes advantage of my just willing service? And the answer is yeah, maybe, right? But that's why application is so important because what's happening is that this is not an application that's a personalized, individualistic application. This is a corporate application, right? I'm, I'm, I'm not saying, hey, some of you, if you feel like it, I'm, I might suggest to you that you start serving others. I'm not saying that at all. I'm saying that if you claim to be a follower of Jesus in this room, Jesus, not me, but Jesus is telling you right now in his word, you don't function as if the world exists to serve you. You function as my follower by serving others. And the beauty is that if we all apply this, If we decide corporately as a room that this is how we are going to function, the beauty is that no one gets taken advantage of and all of our needs get met. If we all function as if, man, I'm just looking for ways to love and to serve the people around me, then we all feel love because we're all thinking more about the other people than we do our own desires and needs, right? This is kind of like like marriage uh, or premarital counseling, like 
101, one of the things that they tell you when you get, get married is that, you know, if you wake up in the morning and you start thinking about the other person, magically, both of your needs get met. Right? So like if I wake up every day and I think, how can I love and serve my wife? And my wife wakes up every day and says, how can I love and serve my husband? Today, at the end of the day, magically, we both feel loved because we're both thinking of not how we can serve ourselves or how we can be served, but how can we love the other person? But on the flip side, if we both wake up in the morning and think, I got a long day. I really hope she pays attention. I really hope he pays attention to what's happening. Right? If we wake up and immediately start thinking about all the ways that we desire that the other person serve us that day, then when we come home, that's not a very fun conversation. Because all of a sudden, all day, we have been expecting the other person to serve us, and then all of a sudden, we have those, those kind of tense conversations of, hey, hey, how was your day? It was exhausting. Oh, yeah, well, mine was also exhausting, right? And so all of a sudden, like, we, we just kind of have a thing. Not saying that's who we are or what, what we do. I love you, baby. But uh, <laughs> if, in theory, that's how it worked, right, that would be an exhausting relationship, right? But in the moments when we wake up and say, man, my job today is to love and serve the other person. And she wakes up and says, my job today is to love and serve the other person. Then we both feel loved. And how beautiful would it be if we were a community that functioned that way? It's where you looked at the people around you, and the people around you looked at you and everyone else, and we all decided corporately, and let's just love and serve everyone around me, and trusting that my needs are going to get met. If everyone is trying to serve and love and bless, we're all going to feel loved and be blessed. But you can, however, continue to function like everyone exists to serve you if you want to continue to have relationships that just tank. Second, the second way to be a bad friend is that you can choose bitterness over forgiveness. To choose bitterness over forgiveness. And here's what I mean. Every relationship will have conflict. That's just part of being a human, right? You put a bunch of sinners in relationship together, eventually someone's going to get wounded, right? You will wound somebody, they will wound you. And so we, we will all have wounds at some point in time. We're going to have conflict. And when those things happen, you have two options. One is that you can address it and say, hey, that, that kind of hurt. And you can move towards forgiveness. Or you can ignore it. You can kind of sweep it under the rug. And what happens then is you don't actually move towards forgiveness. You move towards bitterness. You allow bitterness to grow. And one of the ways that we just become horrible friends and we tank relationships is if we choose to be bitter. When we choose, when someone wounds us or hurts us or, or we have a problem with somebody else, we just kind of sweep it under the rug and we just kind of ignore it and we allow this bitterness to grow. And what happens is that it creates this distance between us. And that's the exact, again, the exact opposite of how we're actually taught in Scripture. Look at what Paul says in Colossians 3. He says, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with, with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. What, what Paul is trying to say here is, hey, not if, but, but, but if and when you have a complaint against somebody. When you experience conflict, because again, like if you have conflict, that doesn't mean that your relationship is unhealthy. Your relationship is unhealthy if you have conflict and you ignore it. That's where it becomes unhealthy. And he's saying, hey, you will have conflict, but when that happens, address it. 
Say something, bring it up. If, if you have a complaint against another, man, forgive each other, move towards forgiveness. Say something and move towards forgiveness. But the reality is that's awkward, right? It's awkward, it's uncomfortable. Oftentimes it's just easier to say, oh, you know what, it's, it's really not that big of a deal. I'll be fine, I'll get over it. And what happens is you just allow that wound to fester. And it builds and it grows and it gets nasty. And bitterness just grows and grows and grows. And before you know it, there is just a distance and you're a bit more untrusting and you're more hesitant to let people in, right? It's a great way to tank a relationship. Right? But man, my hope is that we are people that, that are willing to do the, the kind of hard, awkward thing to actually say, hey, that hurt, and actually move towards reconciliation and forgiveness just as we have been forgiven in Christ. Right? And so if you're in the room and you think about yourself and you have just a laundry list of grudges, we got to fix that. If you could just list off off the top of your head all these people that have wounded you, we got to address that. You're okay, but we got to address that because that will keep you from having the types of healthy relationships that you crave. You will always be untrusting. You will always be hesitant. You will always have walls that come up. You'll never let people in because you have come to a place where there's so much bitterness that you can't actually trust people. Now, let me be really clear about one thing specifically. It's not lost on me that there are people in this room who have been taken advantage of in ways that I can't even imagine. There are people in this room that you have been wounded in just some horrible, incredibly sad ways. And those wounds are real, and those wounds are deep, and I am so sorry. That's not lost on me. I think one of the things that, that we do when we talk about forgiveness is that people that haven't experienced really deep, life-changing wounds like that is we can really flippantly say, say stuff like, just forgive and forget. That's really bad advice because the reality is that for some of you, you can't forget what happened to you. You just can't. You can't forgive and forget, but you can forgive. You can forgive, and, and that doesn't change what happened to you. It doesn't minimize your pain. It doesn't erase what happened. It doesn't make it right. But what it does is that it shows that you are willing to extend the grace and forgiveness to those that have wounded you just like Christ has shown grace and forgiveness to us. Because what we see on the cross is the most incredible picture of grace and forgiveness imaginable. Because Jesus, on the cross, after his own creation rebelled against him, turned their backs on him. After his own creation cried in the streets for a murderer to be released and Jesus be crucified. After his own creation beat him within an inch of his life and mocked him and spit on him and ripped the beard from his face while Jesus is on the cross, he cries out, Father, forgive them. Because they don't know what they're doing. They just don't know. And what we see on the cross is this picture of grace and forgiveness where Jesus lays down his life for the very people that were murdering him. And for you and I that would eventually come and continually run and rebel against God. So I don't want to ever minimize the pain of anybody. And I know there are things that I probably don't know and can't even fathom. 
But my hope is that the gospel moves us in such a way that it transforms our heart that we can, um, even in the midst of real serious wounds, move towards people with forgiveness because that's what we have received in Christ. But lastly, the third way to be absolutely an awful friend is to use your words carelessly. To use your words carelessly. Um, I'm a big believer uh, that words are the most powerful force on the planet, right? Like, words are powerful. Like, words led to the rise of Nazis, and words also led to the abolition of slavery, right? Words have tremendous power to do harm and to do good, and some of you know that. Some of you, your identity is what it is because someone said something to you when you were a kid, and it shaped you forever, for some of you, the way that you view your body is because of some stupid offhanded comment made when you were a kid. For some of you, the way that you kind of view your worth and your value, whether good or bad, comes from something that somebody said to you, right? Words have tremendous power to shape us for a long, long, long time. And I think a lot of us kind of know that instinctually, but if we're honest, when it comes to our relationships, in our friendships, sometimes we're just careless with our words. We just throw words around without thinking about the consequences of what we're actually saying. Right? Like we, we give people a hard time and say, oh, no, I'm just kidding, man. I love you. We point out flaws in people and we just laugh and joke and say, oh, no, like, like you know, I'm just kidding, man. Right? We, 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 we use our words in all these ways where we're just absolutely careless with the way that we use words. And without even realizing it, we can create wounds that we don't even know about, right? But if you look at the, what the Word of God says, we actually have a very specific way that we're called to use our words. In Ephesians 4.29, Paul says this. It says, Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. Um, now, some translations say, let no unwholesome talk come out, come out of your mouth. Um, that's the, the version that I grew up hearing. And for a long time, when I was a kid, I just thought, let no unwholesome or no like, corrupting talk come out of your mouth. I thought that was just you know, bad words, dirty jokes, like stuff that your mom's like, hey, that's unwholesome, right? Like, but um, if you actually look at what the word says, this is a fascinating word in the Greek. This is a word. Um, let me make sure I get this word right. It's a sapros. Sapros, that's fun to say, right? Um, and what sapros means is it is a word that means rotten or useless. Rotten or useless. And it's only used seven times in the New Testament. And every other time outside of this text, it's used by Jesus specifically when he talks about, about trees that bear good fruit and bad fruit. It's the word that he uses for bad fruit. And what's like bad fruit? It's, it's rotten fruit. And rotten fruit is useless fruit. It has zero purpose. It has zero value. It contributes nothing to the nourishment of people. And so I don't think it's a mistake that Paul uses that word. And so what Paul is really saying is, is not, hey, watch your mouth. Don't say dirty jokes. Don't cuss. Don't, no. He's saying, hey, I want you to think about the words that come out of your mouth. I want you to think about what you're about to say. And if it doesn't produce life, if it is useless, if there is no value to it, there's no worth to it, if it is absolutely rotten and useless, maybe don't say it. Maybe don't use your words when they have no value, 
when they don't nourish humanity, when they don't lead to life and growth. Instead, use your words to build up so that those who hear may experience grace. Right? It's, a, it's a shift in the way that we think about using our words. And, and, and here's where kind of our culture rubs up against what the word of God says. And I was thinking about this because I'm guilty, guilty of this 100%. And it's honestly really ridiculous how we function as a culture. We function in a way where we love people by tearing them down. You know what I mean? Like, like, like we will like razz people. We, like we will make fun of people and then be like, oh, dude, I love you. You know I wouldn't say that if I didn't love you, right? And you're like, What? Like why, like, why would we point out someone's flaws and then be like, oh, no, dude, I say that because I love, love you. It's like, no, that's, that's debilitating. That's awful, right? And, like, and I am the worst. Like, I'm one of the most sarcastic people one-on-one. In fact, I, I actually just, just realized I made fun of Marcus before I walked up on stage. Uh, before he walked up on stage, I said something. Um, and I'm like, I'm, I'm just, but it's because I love him. And that's ridiculous, right? <laughs> you don't like, like make fun of people because you love them. And when I think about that, I was like, why? Why do we do that? Why do we use our words to tear down and call it love? I don't have an answer to that. I have no idea. But here's what I do know. I do know that we all love the person that uses their words with purpose to speak life and to build up, right? Like, I've never met the person who's like, man, my friend Bob is the worst, dude. He, uh, every time I talk to him, He's so specific, and he knows me so well that he, he's always uh, bringing to light my gifts, my talents, my strengths, and really affirming those and really trying to make sure that I know how uniquely wired and gifted God has made me. And so, man, I'm just so over it, and I just feel like it's just a little much. Like, I've never heard that person, right? No, like, if someone takes the time to point out how God has wired you and calls that to attention, and builds you up and lets you know how special you are or just does something to speak life. Like, that makes our day because it's rare. And so all of a sudden, we're on cloud nine because it's like, wow, I love that person. They, they actually took time. I feel known. I feel loved. I feel cherished. I feel like someone actually took the time to make their words count. And so the question is, man, are we people who understand the power of words, and are we willing to make our words count? Because here's what's so beautiful about actually being purposeful with our words and speaking life. When we speak life with our words, or when we use our words to speak life, we look like our Father. Because our Heavenly Father uses His words to literally speak life. From the very beginning, in Genesis 1-3, it says that God said, let there be light, and there was light. In the rest of the creation account, our heavenly father, he speaks. And life literally comes out of his mouth. Everything has breath. Everything has life because he speaks. God choose or chose to use his words to literally speak life. And all throughout scripture, we see our father using words to speak life. And we see that in the gospel. Because scripture is clear that apart from God in our sin, what happens is we are aliens, we are strangers, we are Children of wrath is what Ephesians 2 says. But in the gospel, we have been given a new name. But because of what Christ has done on our behalf, now when God looks at us, we, he, he doesn't see us as a child of wrath anymore. We are a child of God. We are a son, a daughter of the king of the universe. And he says with his mouth, you are loved because you're mine. You're mine. I'm not going anywhere. 
So when we choose to use our words to speak life, we get to look like our Father. And so my hope is that when we kind of think about relationships and, and what makes a relationship good, what makes a relationship tank, that we understand that the foundational thing is that we just have to be better at just being friends. Before we, we can ever think about, man, who am I as a spouse? Who am I in a dating relationship? And it all starts with who are you in just relationships in general as a friend? And do we function as, as people that, or do we function as people that believe that everyone exists to, to serve us? Do we choose bitterness or do we uh, use our words in really careless ways? Let me close with one last application. Um, I am a, a big believer that uh, even if you just apply this stuff, there's probably stuff that's happening in our lives that we don't even know about, right? What I do know is, is that no one really sets out to have horrible relationships, right? No one's like, I want to be the worst friend on the planet. That's my goal today, right? That's probably not how you're operating. But you might be in a place where you're thinking, man, my relationships feel tense. My relationships don't really feel like the way that I want them to feel. I, like there's something off. And maybe there's a blind spot. Maybe there's something in your life that I haven't even covered that, that is keeping you from having the types of relationships that you desire. So can I encourage you with one thing that could be really awkward? I want to encourage you this week to ask one of your best friends to evaluate you as a friend. Like, ask your friends to evaluate you as a friend. Because if you have a blind spot, I guarantee those closest to you know what it is. And they might not be telling you because you're not asking. But I would bet that if you go to those who are closest to you and say, hey, can you just be honest? Let me know if you see anything in my life that's hindering me from just being a good friend. My guess is that they'll have an answer for you. And maybe it just, just means walking through this list, right, just as a starter. Say, hey, man, do I, do I function as if everyone exists to serve me? Am I really selfish in that way? Do I, do I just have a long list of grudges? Do, do I just get really bitter about stuff? Do I sweep stuff under the rug? Or, man, do, do, I, do I wound people with my words? Is that a thing that I do often? Right? Like, I mean, just walk through this list because when that happens, one, it helps us understand where our blind spots are, but also helps us grow. Right? I think there, there needs to be something in us that, that just craves evaluation because evaluation helps us grow to be healthy. Right? So, for instance, every year uh, I hire a secret shopper to come to the art bar. And what a secret shopper does in our co context is I pay someone uh, to pretend to be a college student and to inform our staff on how we do at making people feel at home or welcome if it's their first time. And it's always a really fun conversation because either we do horrible or we do really, really well. Um, there's usually no like in between. Um, and, there, and there have been times when it's been really encouraging to say, okay, cool, like we're on the right track. And I think, or twice there was a time where like the secret shopper had to break character because people were being too nice and inviting them to lunch and coffee. And they're like, I'm so sorry, I don't go here. Like, I'm, like I don't wanna lie, lie to you, but you're doing a, like an amazing job. Um, so that's, that, that, that's awesome, right? But the very first time, the very first time we ever did this, I hired this guy who was an actor. And I said, hey, man, I feel like we're not doing as great a job at welcoming people in as I think we are. Can you let me know if that's true or not? And he's like, yeah. And I was like, all right, I want you to act and pretend like you're just so new and so lost. Like, I want it to be painfully obvious that you don't know a soul in the room. He's like, I got you. And I had a guy in the corner filming him as he walk, walked in. He stood by himself, not, not in the corner, but like he posted up in the middle of the room, just like standing here like this. 
I kid you not, for eight minutes. For eight minutes, eight minutes, all of our people were just walking around him and be like, oh, I'm sorry, man. And like, and all this thing, and, and, he, and he was just standing there like this for eight minutes. And when he walked into our staff meeting and he explained to our team what his experience was like, everyone was like, something has to change. And I'll tell you, that was never our intention. We never had the intention for someone to stand by themselves for eight minutes, right? But there was a blind spot that we had just, that we just couldn't see. And we changed everything that we did to make sure that that didn't happen to anybody else. And do we fail? Yes. But are we trying to get better at making sure that people feel at home? Yeah. And I think that same concept applies to our relationships. I mean, we have to have the spirit of being willing to, to hear really difficult things to help us grow and to be better. Right? And so I want to challenge you, as awkward as that might be, to ask your friends, say, hey, how am I doing it as a friend? And if you're the person that gets asked, be honest. Be honest. You, you are not doing your friend any favors if you're like, oh, no, you're doing great, man. Um, like, that's... That's not helping anybody, right? So my, my hope and my prayer in, in all of this is that before we start talking about dating and marriage and all that stuff, that we understand that foundational to healthy relationships is just, man, are, are we good friends? Are we good friends? Are we people um, that are selfless and we're just looking for ways to serve? Are we people that are, are always moving towards forgiveness and away from bitterness? Are we people who are, who are constantly trying to figure out ways to make our words count and to build up people and to speak life? Because if that were the case, and can you I just imagine how healthy this place would be? I think people outside these walls will look at the people in this room and say, man, I don't know if I agree with the whole Jesus thing, but I cannot argue with how well those people love each other. And I, I just need to know more. I think this place would have a completely different feel if we were people that, that started with a foundational level of, man, let's just be good at friendship. Let's just be good at being friends. Let's be good at relationship because that's how Christ has called us to be. Let me pray. Father, I, uh, I thank you that you care about relationships. You are so relational. And you model that for us from the very beginning. So Father, I know that your heart, that your people model your relational, your relational drive and your relational capacity, Father. And so Father, will you move us in a way where we just wanna be good friends? As basic and as simple as that sounds, as elementary as that sounds, Father, may you do a work in our hearts. Will you open our eyes? Will you show us blind spots? But will you also give us the courage to take action? In the moments when it's hard and we don't want to serve, we don't want to look outside of ourselves, in the moments when we feel wounded, when, when we feel hurt, God, will you do a work in our heart that moves us to be people that are better friends? because we believe that that is what you've called us to, God. Will you do a work in this room? We love you. It's your son's name we pray. Amen. What a way to start off our new series. Josh challenged us to be the type of friend that Jesus calls us to be. And in turn, that will help us be the same people in a relationship. 
So we want to challenge you to get invested in community. If you are in Fort Worth, join us at Renovate and get into a small group. Or if you are listening from a distance, find a local church and get plugged in there. Because we believe that community centered around Jesus is going to be one of the biggest tools you have outside of the Spirit of God in shaping you to look like Christ. So if you want to know what options are out there for you, reach out to us at renovateftw.org or on social media at renovateftw. And we would love to get you connected to community. We hope this has been a blessing to you and that you have a great week. Take care.